was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I want to take a second and describe a new project I've been working on for the last year or so. It's a book called The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. And it's coming out on January 12th, 2021. So what I've done is distilled down some of the best practices, kind of hacks and ideas and strategies of all the episodes we've done here at Built to Sell Radio. There's more than almost more than 250 of them now. And what I try to do is codify the best ideas into this book. It's divided into three sections, everything you need to do before you get started, how do you drum up multiple offers for your company, and then finally, how do you punch above your weight class in a negotiation to sell. To get a copy, just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Here's the next episode. Next up is Saad Juman. He built a company called Policy Medical. Built it up and sold it for 7.2 times revenue. How on earth is that possible? It's such an enormous exit, but embedded within this story are some of the secrets that Juman followed in his journey, including how to find a mentor. And I found our whole conversation about mentorship really interesting. So the first half of the conversation is really dedicated to mentorship. So if you're into more of the negotiation tips and tricks, you can fast forward to the second half of the conversation where we get into the things he did to prepare his business to sell, the three things he wrote down on a card that he insisted on and helped him filter out the 37 offers he got for his company. Again, he moved them from four all the way to 7.2 times revenue. To tell you how he did it, is Saad Juman. Saad Juman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell me about Policy Medical. Treat me like an idiot. Describe it to me as though I'm like a 15-year-old. I'm streaming through TikTok. I, you know, like, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> Explain to me your business model. So... What Policy Medical was, I mean, certainly it wasn't the sexiest of spaces, right? Uh, When people would meet my wife and I, she's a journalist at really cool TV and radio stations. And I would say, I'm in healthcare regulatory compliance software. And they would say, oh, that's good. And they they would kind of move on to her. But but in, in a nutshell, what Policy Medical did and does, the flagship product, it originally automated and made electronic a manual process within the hospital setting. So hospitals, uh, Canadian and US hospitals, but our main market was the, was the United States. They have these documents called policies and procedures. So every corporation has policies and procedures, your time sure. off policy, everything else, your expenditure policy, et cetera. However, hospitals, their policies are around, for example, disinfecting a scalpel after surgery. Uh, another one, for example, might be how do we properly mop the um, entryway of the hospital to make sure nobody slips and falls? All of these are super important because if they're not managed and executed properly, there could be serious litigious repercussions for 
the hospital. So I found that niche years ago where I, I realized that hospitals were getting into trouble. They were getting sued. Um, they were not getting the, in the United States, the Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements that they needed because they couldn't follow their policies and procedures uh, correctly. So we came along and we allowed them to take that stuff off the shelf, put it into some software and get to it a lot easier. And then I followed the chain. I realized that they were writing these documents based on these government documents called standards. So then we said, oh, it'd be kind of cool to kind of show them how the standards they have to follow marry to the policies. So that was the, that was the software, that was the play that we uh, did initially. And the driver, it really was the US, United States healthcare and regulatory compliance space that was the real driver for this type of software. I can't believe there aren't competitors in this space. I mean, there must be other companies that do this, like create policies and that hospital employees can, can access via the internet. Yeah, there, there, there are and there were. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I forget who wrote this, but um, maybe it was Glad Malcolm Gladwell years ago, when people come up with ideas in history somebody sitting somewhere in the world and they think that they came up with this really novel new idea. Um, when I started that company, uh, you know, I exited in 2018. So before that exit, it was 17 and a half years. So about 18 years before that, I'm in Toronto thinking I came up with this brilliant idea. A year later, I see this other company come, come up in Idaho um, and they were called policy something else. Um, and I always thought that they copied me. Um, but I exited, he exited, and another competitor exited years later. And I, was, I always thought, you know, my own narrative is they copied me all along. They rode my coattails. But you know what? After all the exits happened, I actually reached out to those former competitors because we had nothing barring us from talking. Sure. And it turns out that they legitimately came up with the idea themselves around the general time that I did and, and we launched it. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? So how did you finance the business? What was your finance structure? It was completely bootstrapped. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from a part of the greater Toronto area called Scarborough. I'm a kid from Scarborough. So when you come up and Scarborough is a pretty low income, tough and rough place. So to start a startup there around the year 2000 is not, is not the thing that people do. Right. So I started it in my mom's basement in Scarborough. So we ran it pretty old school. The original premise was build product, get product done, sell product, get money from product, save some to fund growth, take some to pay bills. Like that was that was a general formula that, that we built the business on. And we really grew the business based on organic organic revenue. Wow. How did you acquire customers? In the beginning of the company, it was very different from the last chapter of the company. Beginning of the company, it was dialing for dollars, right? So, you know, I felt like I was in a in boiler room, the movie. I and that that was my background. I'm not a technical engineer founder. I'm a business sales founder. So I was a software sales guy before. So I was very comfortable picking up the phone, burning the midnight oil, making 100, 150 calls a day. Um, calling hospitals. When I realized hospitals were the main target, uh, all the way back then, I, I bought this thing called a hospital blue book. It's like a phone book that lists all the phone numbers of all the hospitals and has the names of all the executives. 
So I just went through that thing all day long. While my co-founder, uh, whatever people would ask for on the phone, I would say, yes, we have that, even though we didn't. And I'd hang up and I'd turn to him. I'd say, Josh, I told him we have this thing. We got to build this now. <laughs> love it. Love it. The ready, fire, aim approach to startups. It's perfect. Yeah. So what was this? How did you guys uh, deal, you and Josh, figure out the, the equity piece? Did you guys co-found it and kind of went the 50-50 down the middle? Or did, did he come later? Or how did you guys structure it? You know, back, back then it was... 50-50, right? Um, there was this thing called a casting vote um, that the lawyer that we used at that time said one of us needs to have, so it ended up with me. Um, and so I guess in a way it was like 51-49, but it was pretty much 50-50. He built the product, he was the engineer, I sold it, um, and then we grew and grew and grew organically. And then probably seven, eight years into the journey, uh, he wanted to leave. I wanted to stay. We had we had different ideas for the company, um, which was fine. Uh, and then it took us maybe a year or so to figure out how, how to part ways. And I bought him out. He moved on. Uh, and then I was left with, with 100% of the company. How did you value the company when you bought him out? Oh, man, that was, that was so, so difficult because we didn't know. We we're just two young guys. And again, uh, you know, in the city of Toronto, the tech ecosystem has boomed so much, but we didn't really have a lot of mentors or resources or an ecosystem to go to to say, hey, how are, how are tech companies valued? Um, so we just simply went on the amount of revenue we were making at that time um, and divided by two. And that just kind of just to split it, split it, sorry. Yeah, just split it right, right down the middle. So we were making... I think just under $500,000 a year, right? And for two guys in my mom's basement, which is where the office was, right? Um, you know, that amount of money was fine, right? Because we were originally, a lot of people ask us, hey, so did you have foresight? Did you see where this thing was going? The truth is we didn't. We were building it and we were just taking every, maybe every quarter as it came, right? And everything, everything was exciting at that time. So we, we kind of wow. valued the company at the, based on the revenues. Um, and I said, okay, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you half of that uh, and then you'll be on your way and I'll end up with 100% of the company. So to go back, so you're generating, to be clear, $500,000 of annual revenue? in Of annual revenue, yeah. Got it. And, and so was that considered ARR? Like was it recurring revenue in a SaaS sort of? No, no. It was that, all over the place. Well, no, this, this issue that you raised was one that could have potentially killed the company later on because the software licensing model we, were, we used at that time was called the perpetual model. So mm. the perpetual model is the old school way of selling software, which is you sell software and you get a large lump sum of money. That's just in the first year. But every year afterwards, you get about maybe 15% on aggregate for a support and maintenance fee. It's not the lucrative annual recurring revenue piece. Uh, but when we get later to the relaunch of the company, I not only had to rebuild the product, but you actually had to uh, migrate everyone onto a new contract as well. Got it, got it. So to be clear, so you had $500,000 of perpetual software sale licenses. And how did you guys choose to value that revenue? Were you using like a multiple of top line revenue or multiple? 
multiple of bottom line profit or how did you kind of place the value on it? You know, we were, we were just two simple guys. We just said, okay, you know, for the last two years, how much money are we making an average? Right. And it came up to, it wasn't exactly 500,000. It was 400 and something thousand. It was close to 500,000. And then we said, okay, well, you know what, let's, let's just divide that in half. Right. Um, and I'll pay you for half. And that was, and that was it. And he was, he was fine with that. I was fine with that. That looked like an enormous amount of money back then. So you're playing you so you paid him a check, like basically 250 grand. Is that how, yes. like, yeah. that, that's well, how well, I paid him, I paid him in installments because I didn't have $250,000. Okay. So, so we said, you know what, it's going to be over X amount of months. I think it was 24 months and it's going to be interest-free. And I just pay you these installments every single month until, until you get your, your final money. Um, and then we had a mutual lawyer. And then the plan was when that was all done, we had his share certificates in, uh, in, in, in escrow. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So you're a hundred percent owner of this company. What was the next step in, in the journey? It sounds like you relaunched or did something different. Yeah. So when, when he left, I had the company for on my own for about a year, year and a half. And I really sat there trying to make a go of it. It was me and I think two other employees, right? Mm -hmm. So we had an engineer because I was an engineer. I was not an engineer. I needed somebody to replace Josh's skill set, and then I had just an all-rounder, sixth man off the bench, if you will, if this was basketball. So somebody that could help do some sales demos, help pick up the phone to do some customer support, etc. And then it dawned on me that I'm running a lifestyle business, which is which is not bad, but it's not what I wanted. And I started the business when I was a single guy in my mom's basement, no overhead in my life. And then by the time Josh had moved on, I was married. I had two kids. Um, <laughs> and, and I thought, you know what? I mean, the setup isn't bad. The office is around the corner. I can drive there. It's making enough money. It's paying my mortgage. I got a nice car and a minivan and it's, everything's good. But it wasn't what I got into the business to do in the first place. I originally got into this business. I got into healthcare because I wanted to make a significant impact on people's health and, and just have my, have my legacy or my impact built started in, in that particular way. The number I was tracking was 1 million patients. I wanted to impact 1 million patients a day based on the software. And I was far from that number and I realized I couldn't get there running a lifestyle business. I needed a high growth, high impact company. So then I needed to, it dawned on me that I need to restart and relaunch this company from scratch, but I just don't know how to do that. And that's where mentors came in and mentorship came in. Tell me more. Uh, well, I was at a uh, barbecue in Toronto, met a friend that had just exited. Uh, he had a great exit and we were, ch were chatting about that. And I said, what? made the difference? Like what was one thing that made the difference for you? And I said, don't, don't tell me stuff like in YouTube or I can find out at Y Combinator. Just tell me something that's, that not a lot of people are talking about. And he said, honestly, it's mentorship. I said, really? I said, uh, I said, I've tried coaches before and things like that. I said, but tell me about mentors. So we, we broke down his mentorship journey. And at that barbecue, we deduced it down to a formula. Right. And, and we pretty much realized that in his journey, 
he looked for two mentors. One was an industry specific mentor and the other one was a general business mentor. And then after I left him, I said, you know what? I'm going to do that because one of my, one of my superpowers is I know I don't know a whole lot of stuff. Um, and, but I do know when something resonates as being true. So that mentorship formula resonated as being true. So I left that barbecue thinking I need to find two mentors. So then I ended up looking for an industry specific mentor. And here was my criteria. I'll, I'll just be open. I was looking for somebody that had exited or that had built a business of at least, I don't know where I pulled these figures out of, but it was $150 million. And I was willing to travel anywhere to see that mentor because I thought, you know what? I might see them a few times a year. I'll pick up, I'll fly, I'll visit them wherever, wherever they are. For the general business mentor, I wanted somebody here in Toronto. And I wanted somebody that had built up a business of over half a billion dollars a year. And my rationale was, if they were to ever meet, the general business mentor's ego would be neutralized by the other mentor's knowledge in my specific industry. <laughs> and the other guy's ego would be neutralized by the sheer size of what that guy has actually built. Um, so, you know, I put my Napoleon Hill think and grow rich hat on, you know, I, I made my affirmations. I, I, I sent my thoughts out into the ether. Um, and then, and then before I knew it, um, you know, I, I found my industry specific mentor. Um, and then I also found the general business mentor as well. How did you find the industry specific mentor? I made a list actually of three people because for me, I was really specific anywhere in the world. I'm willing to travel. I want somebody that not just tech, but within tech, healthcare, within healthcare, hospitals, within hospitals, regulatory compliance, right? So then there were only like three people that meet that. And then with, and then that had built up like um, recurring revenue ARR of over $150 million. So then it came down to three people. And I thought to myself, how am I going to meet these people? And this is where actually the Napoleon Hill stuff actually comes in because hmm. the same friend at the barbecue, he called me one day and he said, Hey, there's this entrepreneurial organization. It's headquartered in Silicon Valley. Here are the types of programs they run. Here's an example of one. Um, keep this on your radar in a few months. You might want to plan a trip or something to go down to the Valley, and then you can attend one of these. And then I looked at the link that he sent me and it was one of those events, like a meet and greet thing with founders and, and people and successful people that have done things within health tech. But it was, if you were living in the San Francisco area, right? It, it was just an evening thing for two and a half hours. And something in me said, go to this event. And which is very unlike me. So from my office, I called my wife and I said, I know we've got two young kids, but I, I feel like I need to go to this event. Right. She goes, this event, she goes, where's the event? Like, where's it in Toronto? I said, it's in San Francisco. So she said, go, just go. But it's the youngest one's first birthday in two days. You better be back. So the next evening I was driving across the Golden State Bridge and going to this particular event. I showed up at the event and I sat at the table and around the table, I, you know, people were asking me what I did. And it was my first time to Silicon Valley. 
and the people around the table, they were, they were heavyweights in the tech industry. And all of them said the same thing after they heard what I did. They said, that's it. That's all you do. And it made me, I just, you know, within, I got out of my, out of my little bubble in the, you know, the north of Toronto and I went there and they just pretty much shot holes. And they said, they just said, you need a lot of help. And I said, okay. I said, I said, who would be able to help me? And they said, this particular guy. I said, he's on my list. They're like, what list? I said, list of potential mentors. And they said, well, he sometimes comes to these things, but he probably won't be here because he just sold his company. And, and he said, he's taking a few years off. But that night that guy showed up and I just walked over to him after the crowd had, had kind of diffused around him. And I said, Hey, I'm so-and-so. He said, okay. I said, I flew here from Toronto just for tonight. And he, and I said, I, and I said, I need you to mentor me. And, uh, and he was kind of taken aback, but that, that was the start of that, of that particular uh, relationship. I find that so fascinating because it, it sounds almost un believable but what was his reaction to your approach like where did it go from there he he i'm like it's 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 weird to to agree to mentor someone at a, at a function like that i can't imagine he agreed yeah. right on the spot what was what was no he did it he 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 thought i was stalking him right yeah. and i said i said I i'm not too. stalking yeah. you right and you know within five minutes i tried to explain the best i could you know, how I ended up there and, and he's on this list that I have and everything else. And he said, he said, okay. He said, I don't know if I want to mentor you. In fact, I don't want to mentor anybody. I just sold my company. Yeah. Um, if you like, why don't we meet up for a coffee tomorrow night? Right. And, uh, and I explained to him, I said, I can't, I have to fly back to Toronto because it's my younger son's birthday tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, he says, you're from Toronto. Then he realized that. And then, then he tried to brush me off. He said, well, you know what, if you lived here, then I'd make time for you. And then we could, we could see if there's a fit of some kind. And I just said, okay, when? And he said, what do you mean when? And I said, when would you make time? And he said, next Sunday, I, I would be free. I said, okay, tell me, tell me, tell me where. And he said, are you serious? I said, yeah. I said, I'll meet you wherever you want me to meet you next Sunday. So we'd agreed to meet at, um, at a Starbucks or something, right? Um, in the suburb where, where he had lived, a place called Pleasanton. And, um, and then I flew back to Toronto and then we were corresponding over email. And then he pretty much said, he said, look, if you're coming all the way here, um, then why don't we spend more time together? Uh, I said, okay. I said, I'll be staying at this hotel close, close to, close to where you said your house is. And then he called me the following day, just before I came. And he said, you know what? Don't stay at a hotel. Just come stay at my house. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Which, you which, which this was, guy which, once. This is yeah. bizarre. It is. It is bizarre. So year, so to kind of fast forward the story, years later, it turns out that he had just moved into that house. And the house was like a house. And then there's this little guest house on the property. So I stayed in the guest house, but they had just moved into that house. So his wife, before I came that night said, who the hell is this guy that's going to be sleeping in my house? Right. Uh, no one's even slept there before, not even my mother. And, um, and ironically, my wife told me before I went to Pearson airport in Toronto, 
She goes, whose house are you sleeping at? Like, who's, who are these people? And uh, so we met at that guest house and then we spent a few days together. And it was, it was there were long days. We, we were together from like 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. for a couple days straight laying the groundwork. And he kind of gave me a bunch of to-dos. In retrospect, he was testing me to see as, as a mentee if I was going to execute on any of the things that he actually said. And the fact that I, had, I started executing right away bonded us closer together. That mentor actually ceased to become a mentor to me um, because he ended up becoming a partner within the company. There were so many similarities between not what he did before in his previous company, but the contacts we both had, who I sold to versus who he sold to, that he ended up becoming part of the company and he became my head of product and the chief medical officer. Um, but for me, in my, in my books as a mentor and a mentee, you know, these days I mentor a lot of people and I'm also a mentee. I think that if there's ever an exchange of equity or shares or money or anything like that, the mentor-mentee relationship goes away, right? You kind of become partners at that at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so you're a. This is really a very small company, five hundred thousand dollars in perpetual licenses at the time. Is that is that right? Yes, yes. So how did you guys figure out like what percentage he would get versus you? Like how did you work out the kind of the economics of that? Well, you know what? I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I went to my general business mentor when the mentor relationship stopped between the two of us. And it was clear mm -hmm. that he was coming into the company and I was going back to California and I knew we would have the discussion around equity and how mm -hmm. much equity he would want into it. And at that point, at that point I had seen like he was putting in months and months and months of just sweat equity or like asking for nothing. Like he was working more hours than some of the few employees that, that we actually had. So I saw how committed he was. Um, and my general business mentor, they're such an interesting set of, of people. You know, they run a family business that's well over a century old. They do billions a year in revenue every year. Right. Um, but they're very, they're very good family because they give most of the, of the money away to charity. So they have their own way of doing business. So I went to my mentor for advice. I said, how do I figure out how much to give this guy? And he said, you know, you need to really understand him. You need to become him. I said, how do I do that? He said, try something really strange. I said, okay. He goes, sit in your office one morning before all the employees get in. Just turn off all the lights, make sure there's no tech on and set a timer for an hour. And to sit in a chair, close your eyes, and try to become him. Just try to feel like you're him, all right? And you're going to get bored after the first 15, 20 minutes or so. But then you'll start feeling what he wants to ask for. So I, I, said, I said, this is going to feel really weird doing this. He said, just do it. What do you have to lose? All right? He goes, all you have to lose is some time. So I did it. And... Through that exercise, I thought of a number, right? I can't share the number here, but I thought of a specific number. And a percentage of equity? Percentage of equity. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that he wouldn't be paying for. It would be nominal, some kind of nominal fee he would pay for it, right? Um, and, and then when we met up in California, 
you know, eventually the conversation came to him being involved and everything. And I said, so you, you probably want equity. He said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, well, you know, if you're getting equity, then I want you to head a product because the, the great thing about him was I'm not a clinician. I'm not a doctor. He is also right. Uh, he's, he was a great cardiologist and I saw in him the ability to take our software deeper into healthcare. Um, as opposed to being a tech product that marketed itself to a healthcare vertical, but it wasn't really deep into any vertical. Um, so I said, look, if you do that, you know, I want you to execute on that prototype that we built. Because the first, the first uh, couple days that we'd spent together in that guest house, we pulled out this um, prototyping tool called Azure, not, not the Microsoft one. It was this old prototyping tool where you can just put like, screen frames and everything else, but without the guts of the software behind it. So we came up with this whole prototype that ended up being the product roadmap for the whole company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you got to build that prototype, right? That's our agreement here. Um, so he said, yeah, that's, that's a plan. I would love that. It'd be a lot of fun. So I said, what do you want? And he said the number. And that was the number I thought of when I was sitting in my office. And I said, and he was ready for some back and forth. And I said, good, done. He said, what do you mean? I said, that's it. Figure it out. We'll call the lawyer and figure out how, how it all happens. I said, I've never done it before. I said, and, uh, and that's, that's what it was. So he didn't put any cash into the business. It was just sweat equity effectively that, that he put in and you had, you, you yes. already had some equity in, in a business. Got yep. it. Got it. I find it fascinating though, because you know, this was a luminary. You said you were looking for someone who built a $150 million AR company. He didn't want to work for two years. He's built his house. Like, like he sounds like a big shot. It sounds amazing to me that he would sort of agree to, you know, get involved in another startup. Like what, like what was the, what was the secret to getting him to, to, to be interested in being part of a, such a small company again, given the fact that he built such a large company. Yeah. You know what? He was part of the restart and there were many, and the restart wasn't beautiful and artistic and smooth. There were a lot of bumps in the road. Mm-hmm. And there were times where he would say, Saad, I don't know what the hell I got myself into here. <laughs> right? He goes, and he said, he goes, you know, when you found me, I just sold the company. I told everyone in my life, I'm not doing anything for a little while. And then you found me and I said, yes. And he goes, I don't know what the hell I got myself into. Because there, there were times where we, we came through some really difficult had to overcome some really difficult challenges. Um, But I think for me, it was just, it was a belief. Like I believed that this was gonna work. I also, I think he signed me that, like I had re-opted into the business because when when Josh had left and I bought him out and I had the business there, I actually asked myself, do I still want to do this? Because I believe I can just go, I could go do other things, but, you know, I decided like I re-opted into it, which is which is different than operating a business out of desperation and feeling like you have no other choice. You got to make this thing work, right? So, um, I think he saw that in me, and you know, and he heard my one million patients thing and and everything else, and and it was it's all true. So where did it go from there? Because you built from, it sounds like just a couple of employees up to you know 
many dozens of employees by the time you actually exited. What was that journey like? What, what do you see as the, as the main uh, inflection points on that journey? Yeah, you know what? Uh, these days with, with a small amount of my time because I'm getting ready to start another SaaS venture, but, but with some of the people that I coach or advise or I help out with, entrepreneurs, I kind of take them through a version of what I went through over five and a half years, because from the restart to the exit was about five and a half to six years. Mm -hmm. And it went in different chapters. So for example, the very first chapter was product rebuild. So, you know, for any tech people uh, listening and watching to this particular episode, I originally thought that, you know what, let's refactor the code. Let's save what we have and let's launch it. None of that worked. It was clear that we had to rebuild the whole thing from scratch. And I, we decided to build it in this new risky environment called AWS. Um, <laughs> not so risky, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not so risky. But in healthcare, uh, back then, no hospital wanted to go to the cloud. They're like, it's not secure. There's no way. It's not going to happen. But I made the decision, we got to go to the cloud. Like I saw that that's where everything was going. So we made the decision to do that. And that was difficult. So that rebuild took us 18 months. It actually took us 12 months, but then the mentor talent turned uh, product manager, chief medical officer guy that I brought in, he insisted on prolonging the development cycle to build another component into the software. And that was really, really important to us because even when we were acquired, we had, I think like 37 employees or something, right? But we were, we were servicing over 3000 hospitals in the United States. So they were trying to figure out how did you scale? to that amount of customers and you have them and they're fanatical about you guys with such a small number of employees. Well, that engineering decision that he made, which was to set up this little admin console in the software that would allow any non-technical employee to quickly provision the software for any new client or any size of client was a bit of a game changer for us uh, because he had seen in the Valley many companies that were selling and they were selling and selling and selling, but they couldn't invoice or collect because their engineering department was bogged down provisioning and setting up instances of the software. So we actually had a very, it took minutes, even though the hospitals thought it took weeks to set up their, their instance of, of the software. So that allowed us to not have to hire a whole lot of people within client success and customer support and training and implementation and those types of roles. Uh, so after the initial product rebuilt, then the next headache was migration. We needed to migrate all the existing clients, which were in the hundreds at that time. It wasn't in the thousands that we had at the end, but that was really difficult because they were all on-premise. They had different versions of the software. So technically it was challenging. So that was going on. And then we had to do financial or contract migrations. And that part I didn't bank on. Um, so basically we were going to hospitals, our clients and saying, hey, I know you pay every year this small amount of money. However, we're gonna give you this new version. And by the way, you have to take it. There's no option to keep the old one. And by the way, you're gonna to have to pay us maybe triple or quadruple what you pay us currently. Right, because there's this new licensing thing called you know annual recurring revenue, and and they freaked out. They're like, "What are you What are you talking about? Right? Why would I do this?" 
but it took a lot of flying on my part, a lot of sitting down in hospital cafeterias and CEO suites and things like that to explain to them that if they were to go out in the market right now and acquire our product, they would be spending this much. Um, and I know that they only spend this much on us right now. So I'm only asking for this much because we're giving them, you know, we're grandfathering them in. So once, once they realize after many conversations like that, that I'm actually telling the truth, then we were able to migrate almost all of them. Got it. So you moved them all over. And, and so like, what, what's the, what's the, What's the revenue uh, situation like at this point? You mentioned you built it up to 37 employees. Are you able to talk about sort of roughly what kind of revenue you were generating by the time you decided to sell? Yeah, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't disclose at the time of sale, but around this time, so this was like a five to six year journey, right? Yeah. We're only doing maybe $2.5 million in sales at, at this time. Um, in ARR? In ARR, yeah. Got yeah. It. All, all the figures I'll give you are, are all ARR. Um, annual recurring revenue, if you're following along. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, and we, we would invoice them on an annual basis, not, not, not on a monthly basis. But then the other chapter um, we embarked on came along as well. Because the sales team, they would come to me. And the sales team were only two guys, right? They came to me and they're like, Saad, we got a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? Well, as you know, every new client asks for references. I said, yeah, well, we got a few hundred customers. They're like, yeah, but we only have three references and one of them dropped out. So now we have two references. So we only have two references. I said, out of all the clients we have, only two want to reference us. And they said, yes. And then I realized that we have clients. We don't have fans, right? We don't have anyone that's a fan of us, right? And a lot of the big clients, they don't think of policy medical. They think of me because I was the guy that was around. I have the relationship with them and everything else. So then I thought, you know what? We need to move these clients from clients to fans. And that's a nice motivational thing to say, you know, even in a podcast. But in order to do that, we, I implemented a bunch of specific processes and systems in order to make that happen. And like that came what? with a Just lot of- an example of, of one. Uh, we have the daily five. So the daily five is everyone that worked in sales, marketing, client success. Uh, one of the engineers set up this kind of like spreadsheet that would pop up on their screens, five phone numbers and client names and the name of the hospital that they had to call that day. Right. And they would got, they would have gotten an email that week to say, Hey, here are the two or three talking points when you get them on the phone to talk about. So it could be something like it's usually, it usually went like this. Hey, John, how's it going? I'm sorry, I'm calling from Policy Medical. They're like, oh, okay. Um, you know, how are things going with the software? Is everything okay? Do you need any additional help? Usually it's like, no, 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 right? If they, were wait if they had a bug or they're waiting for some feature, we would know that ahead of time. And then I'd say, hey, you know what? A new release came out last week. There's this one feature that your, your hospital will probably really, really benefit from. It's this. It's the ability to edit Microsoft Word documents in the cloud. Like that now is commonplace, but back then that was un unheard of. Uh, and by the way, are you going to be at the Healthcare Compliance Association conference? Because we're, we're going to be there in booth 411 and, you know, our CEO is giving a talk or whatever it is, you know, he'd love to meet up with you afterwards. So, so it was a couple of talking points and it was random. So what that did 
was that that allowed every customer to hear from our company about every 60 days from different people. So then they started to start, they started to think of the brand instead of, instead of us, right? The people um, it. Yeah, exactly. The, the other thing we did is we started a certification. There was no one certifying anyone in policy management software. So I thought to myself, well, why not us? Right. And people in turn inside the company said, you can't do that. You know, there's got to be some kind of process to, to start certifications. I said, and I just said, well, if there is, then those, the certification people are going to come to me and say, you're not allowed to do that. But, but until then, let's just, let's just go ahead with it. So, so we created, you know, a certification for our type of software. And then um, our competitors, customers started coming to get certified, our customers, et cetera. So that also created this credibility around the brand, which also led for clients to fans. Uh, and there were, there, were, there were so many other little things, but the thing is they were all put into a process. They were tracked, they were measured. So it wasn't just one-offs. What I didn't want is, oh yeah, so-and-so over there. Yeah, he's great with customers. Yeah, let him talk to them. No, it had to be the whole little machine had to be turning them slowly into fans. Got it. So where did, let's get into the actual exit itself. So what, what did, what triggered you to want to sell this company? Around year 15 of my time at the company, I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave because, and I'll be, I'll be completely honest. Like I'll actually share some stuff. Actually, one thing about, I'm about to say, I haven't shared in any other podcast before. I wanted to leave because it just wasn't fun anymore. I felt like I had done everything I could. And, you know, I told my wife, I said, you know, if there was a hospital healthcare policy management Olympics, I said, I'd be on the podium and either gold, silver, or bronze. Like I've done, like I know this niche so well already. So I wanted to leave. Also, I looked at the company and the company was continuing to grow. Right. In fact, many of the employees and then we had an ESOP employee stock option program. So we had a few shareholders of the employees. They're all excited. The thing's growing and growing and growing. And I realized that I'm not the best leader anymore. I'm not the best CEO. This organism, Policy Medical, it needs a new leader, needs a new home so it can continue to flourish. So I decided I need to leave. Um, and it was either going to be one of two scenarios, sell the business or if that didn't work out, because I've never sold a business like that at that size before, um, hire somebody else to replace me. And I would mentor that person and remain as the chair of the board and, and all of that type of stuff. Um, the problem I had was, and the thing I haven't shared before is, I realized that my desire to sell was probably three years too early. That if I wanted to extract the valuation for myself, my family, the shareholders, everything else, I would, I should probably stick around for another two and a half to three years. Now that's a really hard thing for entrepreneurs. And I've, I've spoken to some people that want to leave and emotionally they're just so done with it. Right. But I stayed, I stayed for the two, three years. And I use something that I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs use because we're, surrounded by too much self-help motivational stuff out there. And it's just sheer will, mm. right? It's just sheer will, 
right? I buckled down and I got really honest with what the business needs to either be prepared to welcome a new CEO in or to be attractive enough to sell the thing. And I actually, actually had to do a bunch of hard things to prepare for that exit as well. What did you have to do? Like if you think about the things that made the biggest impact over that two or three years. Um, well, the good thing is I had a lot of great mentors around me that have been through it before. So we were very well prepared at the end of the three years to sell. So for example, before, before that three-year uh, sprint, if we can call it, our financials were not audited, right? They were, you know, in Canada, they're just called notice to reader. You had an accounting firm, did it, notice to reader, that's what it is, they're not audited. And I was told by all my mentors, if you wanna sell it for what you wanna sell it for, audited financials of at least three years history, it's a must, right? And, um, and, and also it's probably better not to get, you know, your cousin Bob's accounting firm in his basement to audit it for you. You probably wanna get a reputable firm. So we started on that journey, right? I interviewed all the top accounting firms. I picked the one I felt the best with and we started auditing. So that, that was one. The other one was, you know, if you're cleaning up our CRM, our customer relationship management software, like there's, there is so much dirty data in most companies CRM, but we started to clean that up in a big, big way. Um, the other thing that we did was we started to create our own, what's called a data room um, early. So within the data room, you know, for those of you that haven't been through an exit, you know, you have to eventually build a data room and in the data room, you have all the documents for, for, your, for your company. Um, so in that data room, I, I started to gather employee contracts, previous employee contracts and the vendor contracts. That was one of the biggest things that I did. One of my mentors said, build a huge spreadsheet. On the spreadsheet, you should list all your clients, all of the key terms, everything else. And I said, we don't need to do that. We can pull reports from Salesforce. This is a waste of time. And, it, and he said, build the contract spreadsheet, trust me. And you know what, during the due diligence, the fact that our, our financials were audited by who they were audited by, the other side, they were like, oh, oh yeah, okay, that's, that's great. Um, and when they had, uh, questions about, ooh, you know what, how many clients do you have that have this clause in their contract? We were able to get back to them so swiftly, like within sometimes minutes or within the hour, they were taken back like, oh, I said, yeah, you can, you can go ahead and check in the data room. Like that, that's the amount. But that stupid Excel spreadsheet that I gathered, I put together for three years worth, like that was really, really, really in, in, invaluable. Mm. Um, so th those are some of the tactical things I did behaviorally as a founder, probably the hardest thing I had to admit and do was the following. Um, I had to, I kind of imagined in my brain that there's a bridge and on one side, I'm founder entrepreneur. And then I have to walk across the bridge and on the other side, I become entrepreneur and CEO. And I realized that I was still running the business like an entrepreneur, I'm not running it like a CEO. What's and the difference? the difference is running it, a CEO runs it with more rigor, more discipline, less emotion, and with more data. I was still using my gut. My gut feels this way. My gut feels that way, right? Um, you know, I, I, I would resist at times running uh, regular board meetings, 
um, you know, a CEO doesn't go on vacation um, and then go meet with a client and then write the whole thing off as a, as a business expense, right? I mean, so, so those, those things, that's, that's a type of discipline. Uh, that's the difference between entrepreneur to CEO. It's, it's, a, it's more of a mindset. Uh, so that was, that was difficult, but, uh, but I ended up kind of crossing that bridge. Got it. So what was the next step when, when you went through this period, you prepared the business, you got the data room set up, like what next did like, where, how big a company are you? And how did you get on your front foot and actually start to market it to, to folks? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at that point, in terms of the size of the exit and the valuations, I knew it was going to be a eight to nine figure exit, right? Up, 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 up in that range. So, and what, I didn't what know made how you sure of that? What, like, why were you, why were you confident that in that? What were you basing that on? Well, I, I didn't have much to base it on originally, but then I was told that I need to hire this person called an investment banker. And I didn't know what an investment banker did. You know, I felt like um, if anyone has ever watched Seinfeld and there's an episode where uh, Kramer walks around calling everything a write-off. Well, that's a write-off. This is a write-off. And at the end of the episode, Jerry Seinfeld says to him, Kramer, you don't even know what a write-off means, right? That's what I was like with the term investment banker. Um, eventually, I understood what an investment banker was, right? It's essentially a he or she functions like a realtor in a real estate transaction. They hate that comparison, by the way, just so you oh, know. they do? Well, that's, <laughs> that's what they are. That's what they are, right? Um, really well paid, though. <laughs> Really, really well paid. So I realized I need to get an investment banker. I knew I had all the other people lined up. I had my regular lawyer, had my tax lawyer, had my regular accountant, had my tax accountant. Uh, but the investment banker came in, and for me, I was I I always go very very specific. So I wanted an investment banker that has only done mainly transactions in healthcare technology. I wanted an investment banker that was licensed in Canada and the U.S. I want an investment banker that has a very recent transaction of closing deals for Toronto-based companies selling them to U.S. So it came down to literally two guys with those that particular criteria. And I showed them the financials or whatever else they asked for. And I said, what, would, like, what do you think the valuation would be? Right. And, um, and they said, you know what? It's going to be uh, four to six times revenue. Right. They both said that it'll be four to six times revenue, four to six times revenue. Um, you know, I've signed a, I've signed a bunch of stuff that saying I can't disclose X, Y, and Z. But what I can disclose is because of the preparation we did, um, investment banker probably won't like me saying this, but because of the prep we did, we didn't pay the investment banker any of those monthly preparatory fees. Usually when they come in, they're like, okay, all right, before we start the process, we're going to need to get your house in order and here's our retainer. You're going to have to pay us. Right. Um, I pretty much said, I'm not paying you retainer. And they said, well, no, I said, okay, you look at what I have. Then you tell me what else you're going to do. Then I'll pay you retainer. And they both looked at it and said, well, there's nothing to do. Right. You're, you're ready to go. Uh, the only thing they helped us with is crafting a SIM confidential information memorandum, which is the fancy PDF that, that postures your, your company out there. Um, but we ended up uh, extracting 7.2 times revenue. Um, and, and, and that I, I believe 
that was because of the preparation. The, the speed at which we could respond to things during the due diligence process helped to, along with a couple other things, helped to bump that, that valuation up uh, a little bit. And tell me about the process the investment banker went through. Did he or she kind of market it to, like, how did they sort of promote the business for sale? Yeah, so we came up with a list together. Um, to be honest, most of, most of the people, not all of them, but most of the people on that list, companies on that list, they were already reaching out to me. So the business had gotten to a point where we were getting a lot of legitimate outreaches. So I'm not talking about really junior guys working at some private equity firm in Boston or San Francisco, randomly calling a list, um, but legitimate outreaches. So I had a list compiled, so I shared it with them and they added a few more to that list. So in total, we had between 40 to 50 people on what the list. What was the proportion of strategic acquirers versus private equity groups? It's mostly private equity. Um, there was, there was probably like 50% private equity, another 25% pseudo strategic, right? So they were, they were strategic, but they're owned by and funded by a private equity firm. So I kind of bundled them into private equity. And then there were your strategics as well. Um, I, so he ran a process and it was a very disciplined process. Um, if I, if I think back, he pretty much sent out the SIM. Um, after collecting NDAs. So collect NDAs. Once he collects all the NDAs, he sends out the SIM, right? Um, they look at the SIM and then everybody had, I think, seven to 14 days to request a phone call with me, phone call or two. So then I did a bunch of uh, conference calls. Then after those conference calls, that time was, was closed. And then they had another several weeks to submit their offer. Um, and I remember... Um, my wife and I, we, we did our first trip without the kids right around, right around that time. And I remember being on that trip, getting the email with some spotty internet and looking at the Excel spreadsheet. And I was just dejected because all the offers were, were, were too low. They were, they, were, they were all really low. And I was, I was down. I'm like, I guess it's going to be plan B. I guess it's going to be hiring a CEO. When you say low, like what multiple of revenue were, were the, the original offers? four times revenue can, you know, considering that, you know, we ended up, um, you know, I was aiming for six, you know, they told me four to six. So I was aiming at the top end. Right. So it was like four. So I'm like, this is not going to, it's not going to work. Uh, but what ended up working was I saw that when I came back from the trip, I was, and the investment banker was kind of looking at it saying, yeah, well, you know what, this is how it is. And, and my tip to anybody listening to this is get the best advice you can. However, get away from it and think about what you actually think, because there were so many times in that process that the other side, the other side, meaning people wanting to buy the company told me stuff that my own people told me stuff that would make me feel like, okay, well, this is going in a direction that I don't want it to go in. Right. So for example, would be, you know, the original offers were along the lines of, well, there's nothing we can do, Saad. Like, I mean, this is, this is it. This is the market, right? But I sat looking at that list and I saw two of the, the higher offers. I vaguely remember them approaching me like two years prior. And then I started digging and I realized that they came to me to buy my company two years before. I said no, because I was, 
you know, willing myself to keep on building it. And they went and they bought my competitor, which was smaller than us. And so they started, I went back and asked my investment bank, I'm like, find out what happened in that transaction. Like why did so-and-so win? So what, what I ended up doing is I said, let's just, you know, if this was a house, let's, let's pit these guys against each other and drive, and drive it up. Uh, and that's what we ended up doing. We, we pitted them against each other. We asked them to resubmit. Um, and, and that actually ended up driving it up and getting me to where, where, where I wanted to go. And then we offers, went exclusive. Sorry, so how many offers did you originally get? How many on that original spreadsheet when you were on vacation? 37. You had 37 offers? Yeah. Really? <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. And so you asked them to resubmit and what was the next stage? What was your reaction to the next set of offers? Well, there, there was, there was um, you know, there's a bit of negotiation at that time, right? Them resubmitting and me saying, I don't know, man, you know, I'm talking to somebody else. You know, you have a bit of a history with them. I can't disclose who, right? And saying the same thing to the other people. Um, and then, and then one side was mainly cash and the other side was like half earn out, half cash. And that's when like, I pull out this piece of paper to myself and I wrote these three things on this piece of paper and I stuck it in my wallet. And those three things, they were my deal makers or deal breakers. If I wasn't getting one of those three things, I don't care what anybody says, I'm walking away from the deal. And, I, and that piece of paper was the most valuable tool than anyone or anything else. The paper said, all cash. I didn't want to hold back. I didn't want anything in escrow. I didn't want any of that. Uh, the second thing is fast transition. I was, I, I was willing to give six months, but I wanted to be out. And the third thing was um, Brazilians. So Brazilians meant that most of my engineering team ended up being from Brazil. So they came to Toronto, not casually, like these people emigrated here, right? They were had their permanent residency. They were on their path to becoming Canadian citizens. They brought their spouses. One guy brought his dog. Like they, there was nothing in Brazil to go back to, right? Um, so, but I got the sense from most of the people that I was talking to that they were going to cut the engineering team. Like, because to take over that engineering team, you have to take over the sponsorship responsibility and finish the process. So that was a deal because I didn't want those guys getting deported, right? So that was my last third thing on that list. Uh, so I ended up going with, so I was, when I was pitting them against each other, I was like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be all cash. They're like, oh, well, you know, saw that's not how it's done. You know, typically it's like this and it's like that. And I said, well, I guess, guess we have nothing to talk about here. And one of them ended up agreeing in principle to most of the stuff. Um, then we signed a exclusive LOI which meant that we stopped talking to everybody else other than them. And then how many in are you that process. Sorry, so how many are you down to at this point where you're, you're kind of, you've got your list of three criteria, you know, there, there's a little bit of back and forth over cash versus or not. Like how many are you, cause you had 37 offers. How many are you down to at this point? Just, just the two, just the your two. two, two final offers. Yeah. What yeah. happened to the other 35? There was, there was so low that it wasn't even, 
wasn't even worth it. You say so low, but <laughs> say four times revenue, Saul. That's like, like it's an enormous amount of money. It's why do you say why do you say so low? Four times. I mean, your iBanker said four to six, so they're not like they're not offering you fifty percent of revenue. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I don't. This wasn't my idea, but I had this, I had this figure in my head, and I forget how I came up with it. Money is really hard for me to think in terms of money because for years before the exit, people would always ask me what my price is. It's like, what's your price? What's your price? What's your price? What's your number? Is what they would ask. And then one of my good friends who was an ex-Wall Street investment banker guy, um, he said, what if your number wasn't dollars? What if it was a date, right? So this was about three years before the exit. So in 2015, 16, around there, I picked the date of August 1st, 2018. In fact, I wrote this, I wrote a little statement out and put it on my bathroom mirror. I will sell the company by August 1st, 2018 for X amount of money by doing X, Y, Z. And I had that there. And I kept on saying it every morning, every night, every morning, every night, right? Um, and this, the date the company was sold was July 5th, 2018. So almost like right, right around that time. Yeah, but to go back to what you're asking, it was down to the two. We went exclusive with the one. And during that exclusive time, there was still some more haggling around like the whole back piece, the all cash piece. And here's where like, where there's a will, there's a way. I was so hung up over, no, I'm not going to hold anything back. Because I heard so many stories of people, you know, finally when the escrow is ready to be released, there's so many claims against it and, and they can't get the money back, right? It it's becomes contested. Um, but the, we found a way around it. We found an insurance company that insured the whole back. And all we had to do was, it was called reps and warranties insurance. So what I agreed with, with the acquirer is, hey, we'll split the premium, right? And the premium was like each side had to pay $100,000, right? So $200,000. But in my mind, for me to pay 100K to get, you know, millions and millions of dollars to be released to myself and all the shareholders ahead of time was, was very much worth it. Who are the shareholders at this point? You, you, you had your partner, the chief medical officer, and had a product. What, who, who, are, who else has got shares at this point? Uh, it was him and I. Um, then you got the VP of sales that used to be his VP of sales that um, he brought in as well. Um, I, I needed that guy for, for optics, really. We can get into that if you want. Um, and then there were two really, really talented engineers at the rebuild uh, out, out of Mountain View, California, that, that I'd given some equity to as well. And they were the brains behind how to bring that prototype to life. And then after that, I, I put a little pool aside for employees um, to incent key employees to actually um, be part of the actual journey. Are you talking to your other shareholders? You had a product, the engineers during this back and forth over the negotiation? Are you saying, yeah, we got offers of four times, but, but I'm going to push back and, and shoot for six? Like, are you bringing them in to these conversations? Only, only uh, myself, the head of product, and the VP of sales, right? And what so was their three, reaction? Their overall reaction was they didn't want to sell. 
um, you know, lets us keep running this for, for another five years. Um, but you know, for them, like they weren't in it from my mom's basement for, you know, at this point, 17 years, right. They came in the journey earlier and also for context, they also went through a massive exit before, um, as well. So, you know, they could, you know, they could afford to say, ah, you know what, let's just, let's just wait another five years. See, see where this thing goes. Got it. Got it. But you were, this was, this was like a, a lifetime of money that you wanted to monetize. It sounds like. Yeah. You know what? We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Imagine if I didn't. Right. And we had to weather through this and get out to the other side and rebuild from there. It would, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful that, that, that the exit actually happened. Did it become acrimonious with your head of product? I mean, you wanted to sell, he didn't. Like, how did you guys sort through that? No, I mean, at the end of the day, they, they always said, you know, credit to them, hey, here's our opinion. What we said from day one, this is your call. This company is your call. So whatever you feel the final decision should be, we'll support that, right? But if you want to know our, our you know, our opinion for data, here's, here's what we think. So just out of, that's helpful. You know, I should have asked it earlier, but you know, the, the numbers you're talking about four to six times and getting 7.2, I mean, it, people listening to this are going to just think, oh my gosh, that's like, those are just outstanding, unbelievable numbers. Now, obviously part the SaaS market's very hot. What were, what were the, like, can you share either your, like, can you share your churn rate or your growth rate? Or are you able to share either of those two? Yeah, absolutely. So churn in healthcare, the beauty about healthcare is that you have to be really screwing up to lose customers. Um, and so our churn was like a fraction of a percent. Like we, we rarely ever lost customers. To be honest with you, over the 17 and a half years, we may have lost in total, maybe 15 customers. Oh my right? gosh. And, 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 and a chunk of those were around um, 2008, where there was the economic downturn. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and believe it or not, you know, me as a Canadian, it was, it was heartbreaking for me to learn that in places like upstate New York, you had hospitals where the board would invest their funds into the stock market. And when things crashed, the hospital shut down. Right. And I thought, how could a hospital shut down? Cause you know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen here in Canada. So, you know, some of those reasons came in. Um, others, others didn't want to move to the cloud and we lost them in that way. And that's, that's how it went. Got it. And then growth rate? We were aiming, and this was uh, the Silicon Valley influence of, of the people that came in. We were aiming for one to 250% growth year over year. Wow. And we were, and they, they taught me a lot about a uh, rolling pipeline. It's surprising to me. Many entrepreneurs, when I, when I say, well, open your CRM, like, let's see a rolling pipeline. They're like, what's rolling pipeline? So rolling pipeline is, is this idea that the pipeline has to be kept at a rolling boil if it was water. So as you lose or win deals, as it drops out of the funnel, you have to have enough of a machine and processes in place to be replenishing the pipeline to keep it at a certain amount. Because if you're doing the right things, if you keep it at a certain amount, a predictable amount of revenue is going to drop out the bottom. Got it. Got it. Hence the rolling pipeline definition. Well, Saad, I think it's, it's an incredible story and I'm so happy for you to, to be out and cleared given where we're at these days. What, what, what are you up to now? What's, what's, 
what, uh, where can people reach you? Do you want to send people to a website or what's the, what are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to answer your questions in the, in that order, I mean, the first thing I did after I sold the company was I took a year off. I took a year off to sleep, to rest, hang out with my wife, my four kids, you know, in, in that way. Um, I always thought I had a really balanced life, but I realized after I left that I wasn't always present in, you know, when, when, when I was around them, even though I'd physically be around the family a lot, I wasn't always dialed in and, and present. So that was really, really enjoyable. And then I probably took six months shaking off the rust. And then for the past year, I've been focusing on probably three things. One is figuring out what the next tech venture would look like that I would want to start um, because I don't want to be in the sidelines. I mean, I've invested and advised and mentored a bunch of different tech companies, but I wanted to start another one myself. Um, mm -hmm. So that net has now started with, with a few partners. So that's exciting. So that's got a lot of my focus currently. Um, the other area that I'm focused on is writing. So I've committed to writing a series of books. Oh, so one of them I'm co-authoring um, a book currently. Um, it's, it's essentially a parenting book for entrepreneurs, right? Um, <laughs> around ra raising entrepreneurial kids. Uh, and then the last little bit of my time in terms of my work time, I do a lot to help entrepreneurs, mentor them, coach them, et cetera. Most of them are tech-based entrepreneurs that are trying to replicate some of the things that I did in my journey. That's awesome. And in terms of reaching me, uh, my website's probably the best bet, which is uh, www.sodjuman.io. Um, and my only social media channel that I'm semi-active on, um, I'm kind of an agent person when it comes to actually using tech, even though I build yeah. it, uh, is, is, is LinkedIn. Uh, so, so you can find me there at Saad Juman. Awesome. And we'll, per, uh, we'll use the spelling of your name in the show notes so folks can find you. Saad, it was uh, great to meet you. Congratulations again. It's awesome. Thanks, John. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry, Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.